Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Armchair Booking Wrestling Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Steve Barber, and my magnificent, mysterious co-host is Dwaylon Davis. Say hi, Dwaylon. Hey, everybody. That's right, mysterious. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Got a new one. You didn't weren't expecting that one, were you? No, I wasn't. Yeah, so believe me, I'll think of more. I'm going. I'm going to go until I just run out of adjectives. You know, <laughs> that may be a while. Uh, but anyway, tonight we are going to be discussing basically the evolution of wrestling holds. How did some holds go from being finishing moves to all of a sudden their transition moves? Yeah, yeah. Because and you know we're really not that old, but we can remember a time when some of these moves that are used in every match. Only, used to be only used by just a select few people and that was the match ender yeah and but we don't have that anymore nope everything's just uh it's just from move to move to move it's like it's gotten to the point where it's almost like finishers don't even matter anymore yeah and, and i think there's you know there there's reasons why we were seeing some of the things we're seeing yeah, you know, and we'll discuss it as we as we go. But before we start, I got to give out a couple of shout outs. One, the episode of the podcast named Bless Their Hearts. They interviewed me this past Monday, and now the episode is actually loaded up uh, for public listening. You, you can do on just but anywhere that you can find your own podcast, like you listen to this one. You go to you search for Bless Their Hearts. It's the latest episode. We discuss sports curses. And it was a really fun time. And I hope to have at least one of them on our show at some point in the future. I'd love to go back on theirs and dwell on for both of us to actually go on there and actually talk about yes. the podcast again. And these guys, I mean, they are, um, at least they have been wrestling fans in the past and they were just on Chris Jericho's podcast not too long ago. And they're also uh, from Berea, Kentucky. So, yeah. so they're down to earth. I mean, um, you know, just seemed like super nice guys, you know, just to just sit around, just, just chatting. And that's really kind of what we were doing, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a good time. And I've actually gotten a lot of positive feedback from people who listen to it. And they said, yeah, they'll listen to their podcast. And now other people want to listen to our podcast. And, and that's always good. when we can all help each other out. Exactly. Yep. And you want to give another shout out to a, a good friend of mine, Ange Whalen's from high school, uh, Chris and, uh, we got you, you know, Chris Ahonan. This man, he is on TikTok uh, at underscore big, spell with two G's, fat, spell with two T's, underscore. And his TikTok channel has just surpassed a million followers. And that's amazing. That's just, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and we want to have we, we want to at some point get Chris on the show as well to actually kind of discuss that and how uh, social media affects wrestling or how, how it affects wrestling in the present day. Yeah. And, you know, and I've actually spoken to Chris and we are trying to arrange that. And Chris has also given me at least one other name of another wrestler who I'd never heard of, but the guy he actually now is on my Facebook and I'm going to contact him and try to arrange another interview with him. Um, don't want to say names yet, just in case it doesn't happen. But he's, he's one of the million people that follow Chris on TikTok, and Billy Gunn also follows him. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I always say um, iron sharpens, sharpens iron, and when we're all getting kind of successful because 
our podcast uh, right here, I mean, we're growing. I mean, and we know we're growing. We're looking at the numbers, and it is absolutely growing. And I'm hearing a lot yep. of a lot of things from people. So, um, but that's our shout outs and and wrestling news. And I'll actually let you take this one, Jalen. There was some really really sad news that came about in the wrestling world today. Yeah, unfortunately, um, Daphne. Uh, her wrestling name was Daphne Unger. Her real name was Shannon, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name right, but Spruill, it's S-P-R-U-I-L-L. Like Spruill, um, I think. I Maybe. think. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to butcher it, but uh, she unfortunately um, passed away this morning. Um, she, according to some of her friends that I've seen on uh, Twitter, she had been having some mental health issues here lately. And then she had a very disturbing um, Instagram live video last night. Um, I don't want to speculate because I didn't see, I didn't see it, but just going by what people have said, she reportedly gave, um, had a list of her personal belongings and had a list of who those would go to. Some people said that she was holding something that looked like a gun. And she was talking about, she said, she was saying, don't you people understand that I'm completely alone and things like that. And then they found her, they found her dead this morning. Mm. And as I would have empathy for her anyway, I hate to see somebody, I hate to see anybody pass away, especially take their own life. Right. But as somebody who has struggled with mental health issues, I, I personally take uh, Celexa and it has helped tremendously. But it took me a long time to get to that point where I just admitted to myself that I needed some help. And I have had suicidal thoughts in the past, so I can completely empathize with her. But I just want people to understand that you're never alone. And there's always someone that you can talk to. Never think that you have to go to extreme measures. And I understand the pain, but there's always another way. Exactly. And, and I just want to bless her family. And oh, absolutely. I can't, I can't imagine what they're going through, but just, you know, rest in peace, Daphne. And if anyone, you know, if you ever feel like, you're kind of in that same dark place that she was. If you know how to get a hold of me and me and or Dwaylen, you know, absolutely get a hold of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I would rather get woke up at two o'clock in the morning from somebody who's thinking about harming themselves with decides to call me so I can kind of talk them out of it, then get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning saying that person is dead. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so uh for all our fans um check out if you can um on peacock you know of course they have all the wwe and wcw footage she was on wcw toward like the last couple of years of their existence um she started out with david flair and crowbar go and check her out if you're able to check out tna stuff definitely check out tna between 2008 and 2011 that was her run in tna and she did some really good work. She was a really great wrestler. And it's just sad that she's gone way too soon. And you can tell the level of respect that she had, because if I'm, I'm sitting her going through 
us on the Twitters right now because there's actually yeah here it is to something I found I actually already retweeted it um, but Conrad Thompson he um, as soon as he heard about it he immediately posted uh, the suicide hotline yes I've seen several several wrestlers yeah. and uh, you know wrestling personalities have posted that throughout the day yep and but you, uh, you could just tell, I mean, everybody loved her because I'm looking at all yeah. these posts, people are talking about her. And unfortunately, I mean, I didn't get a chance to really watch her because she was in WCW at a time when I wasn't able to watch it because I was um, overseas in Japan. And then by the time we got back, she, um, she had moved on to um, TNA and I, I never really watched TNA when it first came out. Right. You know? So, I mean, I feel like I've really missed out on something special and so i'm gonna to have to go back and watch some of these yeah yeah you should definitely check that out because she was she was well before her time as far as her in-ring work her character work you know just everything you did you could tell she was one of those wrestlers you could tell that was an extension of herself and she was just especially for female wrestlers she was way before her time yeah she was well, Kyle, Kyle texted me as well, and he said, um, he basically described, he said, well, he said a more attractive Luna Vachon. He said that was, I guess that was kind of. Yeah, that was afraid. kind of that, yeah, kind of that kind of thing, yeah. And, and that's not a knock on Luna Vachon. No, not at all. You know, but, uh, but they had kind of, I guess, the kind of the same uh, personality, same character, so. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely our thoughts and prayers going out with her out to her family. And yeah, like you said, I mean, I couldn't imagine what they're all going through. Uh, so, yeah, I couldn't either. You know, but as we move on, something of a little bit of a coincidence that was going on this past Monday as we're discussing personal feuds spilling over into the ring. Literally, as we were talking about it, <laughs> Nia Jax and Charlotte Flair churned their match into a it started turning into a shoot and now they're calling yeah. it a work shoot but i mean they were throwing punches for real and some of the signs that a match has all of a sudden it's no longer it's no longer a work <laughs> is when they started sandbagging each other yeah and for those who don't know what a, a, what sandbagging is i suppose Dwayne and i we're we're in a match and I go to pick him up for a slam, some kind of move where I have to pick him up. And he dead weights. He puts all his weight so I can't pick him up. That's, you know, a sandbag. Um, and Nia Jax, she was also, she started no-selling Charlotte, too. That's yeah, another sign. Yeah. Because you, you could tell <laughs> this, the, the way they were mouthing, this wasn't a, this wasn't like a, in storyline type thing you could tell they were really angry at each other and uh charlotte started mouthing and then and it looked like for a minute that naya was gonna try to just shake it off and you know get back to the match and then i think she got mad and the look on her face just completely changed and she was like no i'm not putting up with your crap <laughs> yeah and i couldn't really tell what started it I'm not sure. I know um, I saw on Twitter earlier that uh, there are some sources saying that Devon Dudley, he's a producer backstage, okay. and he said that there was some sort of miscommunication um, 
during the match. And that's what, but he didn't specify what that miscommunication was, but that's what led to, that's what led to the shoot. There was some sort of, <laughs> some sort of miscommunication. Woo, it's got, it's got the IWC talking this week. Yeah. <laughs> and people like, as far as Nia Jax is concerned, you know, people are always complaining, saying that she's, you know, too stiff and she's too dangerous and all this stuff. And it's like, I was going through TikTok this afternoon and somebody on TikTok, I can't remember the user's name, uh, but he said it perfectly. He's like, everybody that's complaining about Nia Jax working stiff or, you know, Apparently, you don't watch enough wrestling. There's Vader, Stan Hansen, JBL. There are tons of male wrestlers that have worked stiff their entire career and got praised for their, for their work. Yep. But because she's a woman, she's not supposed to wrestle stiff. Even though in Japan, women wrestle stiff on a regular basis. That's yeah, they the do. Style. And so it's like, I think it's like, Mark Henry worked stiff. There was guys that didn't like that. Of course, Mark Henry told them just, just they were going to have to deal with it because that was just how, how he worked. He's the world's strongest man. Exactly. You know, he could just come up and just lightly thump you on the yeah. ear and your ear would go flying off. I mean, he didn't yeah. know. He really, I mean, well, he knew his own strength, but at the same time, he didn't. Yeah. It looks like Vader. You know, Vader, you know, a, an open palm strike from a normal sized man. I mean, it's going to hurt, but if Vader hits you with an open palm strike, he's going to take your head off. And yeah. it's just, Nia's kind of in that mold of Vader. And it's like, people just need to realize that, you know, women can be hard hitting too. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think I would want to get into a fight with uh, Nia Jax. No, no. <laughs> But before we actually start on the subject of the show, I want to go ahead and give our contact and listen info. If you would like to email us, it's armchairbookingpodcast at gmail.com. If you want, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash armchairbookingpodcast. You can find us on Instagram at armchairbooking. You can find us on Twitter at bookingarmchair. We're on YouTube. We're on uh, Apple Music, we're uh, with that, along with Apple Music, of course, you have iTunes, you have Stitcher, we have, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Amazon Music, and last but certainly not least, we're on Block Talk Radio, and really, in anywhere you can Google and just find something, oh, Google Play, that's another one, I almost forgot about that one, and I'm going to keep looking for other platforms, if we're not on them, I'm going to try to get on them, yeah, but that's just where we are, because we want to get this out to, to everybody as much as we can, because we enjoy yep. it, and we think everybody else will enjoy it, too. You know, so I don't believe I forgot anything. Almost nope, I think you got everything. Yeah, I almost forgot some, some things, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dwaylon, when we talk about the finishing moves of today, I mean, yes, they do look a lot more spectacular. Uh, but like, uh, like the Can Canadian Destroyer, I'm not actually not. I'm actually not a fan of it because it requires your opponent to kind of help you do the move against them. But yeah, but some of the other moves we see, a lot of the younger fans don't realize these moves used to be someone's finishing move. In fact, sometimes yeah. in some cases they still are in a way. Yeah, depends on the wrestler, but like 
for me, the DDT is the most glaring one because Jake Roberts made that move famous. Arn Anderson perfected that move. They were matched. They when when they hit the DDT, they were matchmakers. That was it. I mean, and it was believable. You drop a guy on his head like that, that's it. It's over. Yeah. But now it's just like everybody hits DDT in their match and it's just a transition move. And it's like, I don't understand how it went from, because everybody anticipated the DDT when Jake Roberts hit the short arm clothesline, you knew what was next. You yes. knew the DDT was coming and you knew if he hit it, the match was over because the only person that's ever kicked out of the DDT was the undertaker. But that yeah. was the undertaker. Yeah. That was the Undertaker's gimmick. Yep. And Jake was on his way out of the company. So he was doing the favor, you know, for the Undertaker. The Undertaker was the new up-and-coming guy. Jake was doing the honors on his way out, which is the old-school approach, which I think should still be the approach. But other than the Undertaker, nobody kicked out of the DDT. When Jake hit it, it didn't matter if he was in Memphis, Mid-Atlantic, WCW, WWE, it didn't matter where he was. Whoever he hit it on, that was it. And now it's just like a throwaway move. It's just a guy yeah. hits it now, and it's just a way for him to get it, you know, to catch his breath for a minute. Exactly. It's not necessarily a rest hold, but it's a kind of, I don't know, like a better term, the pause hold. Yeah, it slows things down for a minute. It lets both guys catch their breath before they move on to the next sequence. But it's like that, especially if it's done correctly, that should be it. Yeah, and it hurts the credibility. And yes, I realize kayfabe is over. I mean, it has been over for you know over 20 years, you know, 25, almost 30 years, really. But you ever seen somebody use a move kind of similar to like that in an actual fight? Yes. And had that fight in. That was <laughs> it. I mean, yeah. I have seen somebody use that in a fight, and it was over. It was over because, I mean, they just had managed to grab him, and all of a sudden they grabbed him. And it was like a, a Jake Roberts, ooh, slap him on the back of the neck and do it. I mean, they just grabbed him, and it, and it was they just dropped. Boom. Well, that was like when Jake Roberts – do you remember on Saturday, the like early days of Saturday night's main event when Jake was feuding with Ricky Steamboat? Yep. And Jake, Jake told that because they, they wanted – the management wanted Jake to DDT Ricky Steamboat on the concrete. Jake was telling them, you do not understand. If I drop him on the concrete, he's not getting back up. That's, you don't understand how the move is designed. He's like, it doesn't matter how much I pull it. We're talking about concrete, not the ring. Mm -hmm. They went through with it. Ricky, Ricky Steamboat said, okay. Management told Jake to go through with it. So Jake powerbombed him on the, on the floor. Ricky DDT? Steamboat was out. You mean DDT? Yeah. You said, yeah, you said a powerbomb. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Powerbomb will be later in my list. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Jake DDT'd Steamboat on the floor. Steamboat was out cold. Yeah. Jake even said in interviews, it was like picking up a bag of cement. He was, com he was completely unconscious, and Jake had to literally lift him up to roll him into the ring. And he said that Steamboat had a giant goose egg on his forehead. That, that tells you the seriousness of the move. And for that to, I still, like I said, I don't understand why it's gone from this 
deadly finisher to a placeholder in a match. Right. And, and I, I remember also, you know, seeing Jake talk about that and they, they say the best way to take the DDT, you know, if you're on the receiving end of it is do not take it on the top of your head, actually flatten. Yeah. Richards even said that he said, just flatten out. He said, yeah. yeah, part of your face is going to, you know, probably still hit, but he said, just, but it's not going to be like the top of your head. He said, I don't get how these guys take it on the top of their head like that. Cause you're going to end up breaking your neck. Yeah. But, but steamboats, he flattened, but his face still hit that concrete and yeah, his forehead smacked that concrete yep. floor. And the only, the other person that perfected the DDT and used it as a finisher, I forgot to mention was Raven. Whenever Raven, oh, hit that's the right. DDT, when he hit the even flow, that was it. It yep. didn't matter if he was doing a run in on somebody or in an actual match. If he hit it, that was it. And the way he did it, he would kind of whip himself backwards. He was actually landing on his back when he did yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that's like the normal DDT, you know, yeah. because we also have John Moxley, his kind of. Oh, the, uh, the paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah, because the, I mean, yeah, that, and it's almost like Mick Foley when he would do the, the underhook DDT. Yeah, the arm DDT. Yeah, because that's because actually um, Moxley when he was Dean Ambrose, he used to use the double arm DDT as right. a kind of like an homage to Mick Foley when he right. was in WWE. But, uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of variations on the DDT now, but that classic DDT of Jake Arn and Raven, those are. That's how you finish a match. That's, yeah, that's how you finish a fight. Yeah, that's how you finish <laughs> a fight. I mean, a match. That's that's how you get it done. Yeah. I just wish people would. I wish the younger generation would appreciate the simplicity of a move like that. It's like everything. I'm a fan of all kinds of wrestling, whether it's flashy, whether it's technical, everything. But I feel like. Because, because wrestling is so prevalent on TV, I feel like that everybody's trying to get as much of their stuff in as they can. And I think yeah. it's more of a, well, I've got to I've got to be as innovative as I can because this guy's over here doing this. So I've got to try to do this. And sometimes the, sometimes the old ways are the best. Yeah. And because back in the day, like back in Mid-Atlantic, and I usually do go kind of back to that because, like I said, that's what I grew up watching. So I started right. watching. And some of the moves, even back then, if you were to go back, because they have all the old Mid-Atlantic stuff back on Peacock now, don't they? Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Everything was supposed to be uploaded by SummerSlam weekend. They were supposed to have everything on there. And then they would continue to put new stuff that they acquired here recently on there. But the mid, all the Mid-Atlantic stuff should be on there. Okay, because I remember watching some of the old stuff, and as I'm like feeling really, you know, kind of childlike because our some of the programs they have on there, I remember watching when I was a kid. Right. And but some of the matches didn't even have finishing moves. It was just like Wahoo just went in there and just beat the tar out of somebody until he just pinned him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the finishing move would be like an elbow on top of the head, and then you know, or like he just kind of punched him real quick and this is after you know he done all the other stuff to him and he just all right pinned him okay that's it yeah. you know but some of the, but you didn't see 
what was somebody's finishing move for the most part you didn't see anybody using it especially as a transition move right you know and there there might be some exceptions because you have a clothesline but then you have the russian sickle or the lariat something like exactly. that exactly yeah you know that that was just That's one done with a lot more force right you got your standard clotheslines which are still you know transition moves in wrestling but you don't see anybody using a clothesline as a finisher like like you said Nikita with the Russian sickle or Barry Windham with the lariat Stan Hansen with the lariat yeah JBL with the clothesline from hell yeah <laughs> that one moves and that was it it was uh, it's like the DDT it's over but you don't see that anymore now it's just like I'm going to hit a, especially in that's the go-to move in a tag match. It's like when the hot, when they get the hot tag, they usually come in, hit, hit several clotheslines and things like that. And it's like, again, it's just become a transition move because it's like the, they'll hit a clothesline, the guy will pop back up. They'll hit another one, guy pops back up. Those clotheslines I mentioned from those other four gentlemen, you weren't getting back up. Mm. Now you want Barry Darso was another one when he was crushing yes. Khrushchev because yes. he also used the same. Barry Darso, yes. Oh, and uh, but that one's that one's one of those odd ones. Like I said, I mean, you had the ones who specialized with it, but they had some that just kind of hold their arm out. Yes, yeah. And because that would be me, I just hold my arm out. I could try to throw yeah. a sickle, but I'd probably miss. <laughs> but, yeah, like, can you run right here? <laughs> yeah, run right here. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, you missed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, my arm was right here. You just you uh, ran. Just, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but apparently, Dusty he used to tell him, "All right, he he would let you say, 'I'm right, I'm a I'm a home.' You find it. So basically, he would hold his arm up, and they would have to basically crash into his elbow in yeah. a way. But um, but I know one move, and I'm pretty sure this was on your list, and it's a move that was made famous by a couple of people. And now we like everybody does it, and that is the super kick. Yes, yes. Um, it's it's gotten to the point that it's just like I kind of groan whenever people hit the super kick now because it's like it's multiple super kicks in every match. I mean, and I'm a fan of the Young Bucks, but the Young Bucks have ruined the super kick because it's like. They throw it like 20 times in every match. And it's like, I'm sure that was not what gentleman Chris Adams had in mind when he started using the super kick as a finisher. Yep. And I'm no, you know, I can say with 100% that it's not what Shawn Michaels <laughs> was thinking. No. And when, when he used, uh, you know, Sweet Chin Music, the super kick as the finisher. What was his finishing move before uh, the super kick? They call it a teardrop suplex. It was basically just a uh, high-angle back suplex. Okay. I couldn't remember because there for a little bit, he was kind of using it. At, it wasn't really a transition move. It was a setup move for other yeah. things. Yeah, he used it as a setup for the uh, – he used it as a setup for the teardrop suplex, he would hit it, but they wouldn't fall. And then he would grab them and hit the suplex and then pin them. And then I don't know if he decided that the kick was enough or if somebody 
you know, suggested it, but then he just started using super kick and we know how well that worked for him because yeah. and I mean, and that's the sweet chin music is one of my favorite, even if I was not a Shawn Michaels fan, sweet chin music is still one of my favorite finishers because it can literally be hit from anywhere from any angle, yep. any, you know, any position he's in. I mean, he's flipped out of a, of John Cena's attitude adjustment and hit and sweet champion. Yeah. Yep. He hit the best one is when he caught Sheldon Benjamin in the air on raw. Yeah. <laughs> Benjamin did the, you know, did the springboard and Sean caught him. And it's just like, there's no defending that. Yeah. There's, <laughs> that and the match ended and that's how it, you know and it should have because what do you do to top that you you kick uh, a guy in place in midair that's it that's it but now it's like they've had a similar thing in nxt a few years ago um it was adam cole and ricochet they were wrestling for the north american title ricochet did a back springboard where he was his back was to adam cole and he jumped up on the on the ropes, flipped over backwards. He was literally upside down. Adam Cole super kicks him in the head. I remember that. Okay. And it was not the finish. That should have been the finish. Yeah. I'm sitting there watching it like, that's one of the best moves I've ever seen. Why is that not the finish? Because that that is how that is how you end it. Because if you want to oh. go for believability, it's nothing more believable than he just literally kicked this man in the head while he was in upside <laughs> down air. But Ricochet kicked at it too. I know that's how it booked. Oh. He did his job. But that should have been the finish, not a transition. And and I'm pretty sure Ricochet, when he sold it anyway, because that man, when he oh, yeah. sold, I mean, he, he looked like a... Uh. Oh, yeah. Ricochet <laughs> is one of the best sellers I've ever seen. He sold that like he was dead. I mean, he yeah. sold it like he was out cold. But, you know, we're actually missing somebody um, when we start talking about the super kick. And that was uh, one of the also one of the originators, uh, the great Kabuki. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he, he was another one. I mean, but if I, him and, and gentleman Chris Adams, they actually had a little bit of a, um, a story at one point where they was like, you know, who had the better one? Yeah. You know, and who had the better one and who started using it first? They, they right. disagreed on that, too, of who who originated the super kick. Some and, people do say, you know, some people do say Kabuki. Some people say Chris Adams. So I, I don't know myself. I, I would say they both started independently. I would say both started independently. Yeah. You know, without knowing who the other one was. I mean, and one, obviously, unless they happened to start it on the exact same day, which the odds of that are pretty astronomical. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it was independent and they both happened to have it and Chris Adams being a, what he he was a legitimate um judica wasn't he he had a black belt in judo yes yeah because he was was it the 1980 olympics that he was training for i think so and and of course um england also was part of the boycott and so didn't go and so he ended up becoming a wrestler and then he was friends with Kerry Von Erich, who was also supposed to go to the Olympics yep. as, a, as a discus thrower. But I think Chris Adams, if he was still alive, 
if he were to see everybody trying to do his move, he'd just be shaking his head. Oh yeah. You know, going, what I, are you I doing? Uh, the only one I would actually kind of give a pass to because it made sense for him to use it in a way, but I don't think he ever uses the finishing move was Marty Janetti. Yeah. And yeah. And really he only used it during his feud with Sean. Right. So that did make sense, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a rub in, I'm going to use your move against you type of thing. That makes right. sense. In the context of a feud, but just these guys just throwing super kicks just to throw super kicks. It's like, again, it's it's where I'm going to hit you with the super kick and then I'm going to rest for a minute. You rest for a minute and then we'll move on to the next sequence. All right. And watching Yokozuna, but his really wasn't a super kick as much. It was just a thrust kick. He was just just almost like a donkey kick. You know, it, it, was, it wasn't meant to be used as a finish. He was just like, all right, get off of me, you know, for a second. I give, I give Yokozuna a pass on that because – a man that size with that flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with it. I'm just not because that's too, that's too impressive to argue with. Exactly. But I really can't think of too many more. And I'm not going to include Mick Foley's sweet shin music, but that's just funny. <laughs> that, that was, that was just funny. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but what are some other moves that. Um, the power bomb. Yes. Power bomb has become a transition move. Um, which I always loved when I was, especially when I was a kid, I always loved the power bomb. Uh, Sid Vicious, Vader, you know, later on, Kevin Nash, you know, there were guys who used the power bomb and that won the match, and it should. I mean, you get a guy that high in the air and throw him down on his back and his neck, he shouldn't be able, he shouldn't be kicking out. Right. But now you've got the power bomb just put in. I don't know if you just call it a transition move or just something to pop the crowd. Because you see guys just you see guys hit, especially the multiple power bombs, like they'll they'll pick the guy up, power bomb him, keep the hands clasped, and then do it two more times. And it's like, but then they move on to the next spot. And it's like, you've just power bombed this man. Three times. Shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't yeah. that be the finisher of the match? Yeah, and then get him in a small package. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't beat you with this power bomb, but I'm gonna beat you with this small package. Yeah. And I mean, granted, we I don't think we see that one a lot. Not like the super kick, because everybody does the super kick. Right. Not like and, the super kick, but I mean but people especially on people will pull out the power bomb mid-match and it's like i know that i know they're not going to i mean i already know when i'm watching it's like they're not gonna they're not gonna pin them with that they're gonna kick out it too and they're gonna move on to the next spot right because when just the move the, the name of the move alone power bomb um, yeah i i don't want to see aj styles doing a power bomb no Okay, nothing no. against AJ, but he's he's small. Amazing wrestler, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I have nothing, absolutely nothing against smaller wrestlers, but some moves work better if you're a bigger guy. Exactly. Some moves work better. Now, I, I do like Kevin Owens, the pop-up powerbomb, which I, was his finisher, and then they've, they've kind of made him turn that into a transition move. 
Yeah. That kind of a crowd popper and the, you know, he'll get two, two and a half on a pin and then end up hitting the stunner for the win. Nothing wrong with the stunner, but if you literally throw a guy up in the air and then powerbomb him, that should be the end of the match. Uh, the only issue I have with the pop-up powerbomb is another one of those your opponent has to help you do the maneuver. Yeah. You know, but I mean, it's still pretty impressive looking. A lot of it depends on the person too. Like I've seen him hit it on some people. It was smooth and crisp, but John Cena is not a good seller. No, he's not. I mean, he would always take it on his elbows instead of just flat on his back and Ooh. things like that. And it's like, just lay out, John. Just take the move. It's I always felt like whenever John Cena takes a high impact move, he's always afraid to get, he's always afraid to really just lay out and take the move. It's like he tries to brace himself every time. And it's like, you're going to destroy your elbows that way. Yeah. And, and now granted Cena is one of those, he's not the tallest guy in the world, but I mean, he's nothing but muscle. So if he were to do a power bomb, because you know, he could get some force behind it. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Okay. He's one of the strongest guys they've ever had. And, yeah. you know, it would be pretty believable if he did a power bomb, but I just feel like the power bomb should be the match ender. If you pull out the power mm -hmm. bomb, you should be winning that match. Yeah, that should be it. Yeah. And, but another move, I, and this is actually so we could really say there's an evolution of this move. Harley Race, when he won his first world title against Dory Funk Jr., he did it with a vertical suplex because the giant yes. yep just the he actually named it the giant suplex slam yeah and it is i mean and if you really think about it you know you're having the guy they're upside down and whatever your height is i mean that's the height that you're dropping them yeah. from straight on yep. their back so i mean it, it would kind of make sense and of course by the time um i started watching the vertical suplex wasn't somebody's arsenal and i don't know if i want to call it a transitional movie it was definitely a move they would wear down their opponent with yeah, but you didn't see somebody winning with it. But what you did see him winning with was they would prop them up on the top rope and they would they would stand on the second rope. Yeah, the suplex, you know, or the superplex from the second rope, and that was it. Then that went from that to all of a sudden you're seeing the British Bulldogs doing the vertical suplex and a back suplex and every other kind of suplex from the top yeah. rope. Yep. But and you so, knew that was it. Also, yes. And that was it. A suplex off the top rope. Yeah. That's got to be it. Now, I, forget it. I mean, now a lot of them, they also have their suplex off the top rope. And the only exception I'll grant um, that I can think of right now is Seth Rollins. The way he does it, he does the superplex off the top rope, and then he rolls with it to go another su suplex into the, the Falcon, Falcon arrow. Yeah. So that's now, all yeah. part of the that same move. That, yeah, exactly. That's all part of the same move. I will, I absolutely give him a pass because that's impressive work to have that entire sequence go as smooth, especially I've never seen him mess that up. It's, yeah. it's always really smooth. But like you, like you were saying about the superplex, Barry Windham had the prettiest superplex. He did. He really did. <laughs> and that was it. Barry hit you with the superplex. He, he pinned you. Yeah, and because Barry's also six foot six. Yeah, so, yeah, you've got a guy six foot six up on the top rope, suplexing you off. That's it. I mean, there's no getting up from that. But it's like 
now it's like Randy Orton does a really good superplex, but as, as he should because his dad that was his move. Exactly, but it's transition move. It's just it's like I'm gonna hit this for a minute, another breather. We're gonna move on because at the end of the day with Randy, it's RKO or nothing, which I get it. Right. You know, RKO is a great move, but. I just feel like if you're going to use, if you're going to pull out the superplex, then have it at the end of the match, not not in the middle. Right. And granted, now the powerplex, the the, the superplex. <laughs> That's just is the app okay? People can have the doomsday device. They can have the decapitator that demolition used. They can have whatever. Powerplex is the best tag team finisher ever, in my humble opinion. Oh, that move was so awesome. Because I mean, the the precision that it takes for one for one tag partner to suplex the guy, and the other one come off with the front with the splash, <coughs> excuse me, at the exact same time, and make it work. I'd never seen it before, and the only time I've seen it since was um, FTR did it yep. at like a tribute to power and glory and i and they pulled it off and when they since they've been in aew but yeah that one i will i will go with that all day yeah and that one technically the superplex itself was not the finishing move but right. it was the splash immediately the splash afterwards. Right afterwards yeah and that that like you said i mean that's one that probably the best tag team finisher there is like it's better than the the Doomsday Device, which Doomsday Device, I mean, they said a lot of them guys refused to take that. Because yeah, because there's, I mean, there is zero margin for error. I mean, right. and like Henry Godwin broke his neck on the Doomsday Device. Yeah. They had guys break their shoulders, separate yeah. their shoulders, break their, and it wasn't the Road Warriors' fault. It was just how they, no, it's just how, the, it's just how you land. Uh, James J. Dillon said he's still got a knot in his shoulder from War Games. From taking yes. the uh, doomsday device inside the cage because when they got him up, when they got James on Animal's shoulders, they didn't. The cage was was shorter. It was too the short, was yeah. shorter than they were expecting. So when he came off, there wasn't enough room for him to completely rotate. Right, and you know, but to have the powerplex, and I wonder how they even thought of that because yeah, i don't know um but to combine basically two singles finishing moves into one yeah that's why that move is just so awesome you're like oh yeah they're not getting up from that and if somebody yeah. would have kicked out of that i, I would have rioted in my own house oh yeah i'd have been here <laughs> it's like no absolutely not <laughs> but since we're talking about you know the superplex being used as a transition move and we're also talking about now being used the power bomb as a, as a transition move how do you like it when they uh, it seems like they have it at least once every two weeks where somehow a tag team match whether it be you know two on two three on three whatever they have it at least four of them in the corner one guy is getting superplexed and the guy doing the superplex is actually getting power bombed at the same time. And so he, yeah. I, uh, it, now granted, it looks 
it looks impressive, but it's a little much. Yeah. It's it, like the superplex is enough. Yeah. And, you know, if they want to improve the product, stop having the surface acts. And yeah. that's what that looks like is a big cir circus act because now you're taking all these moves that should be the finishing moves. And now you combine them and you're really making us mad. Yeah. And another another uh, person who was great at power bombs was Mike Awesome. God rest his soul. Okay. He, like, the guy was six foot six, 300 pounds, moved like a cruiserweight, and could literally power bomb you off the top rope. Usually through a table. Hmm. And that was it. That was the end of the match, as it should be. If a man that big is throwing you off the top rope through the table, that's that's a wrap. That's, that's all there is to it. But then there's some other moves that I've only seen like one um one person really use them. And it used to be, as far as I know, they used to be a finishing move, but for some reason they're not anymore. And I think it's more because of how they're portraying the person. That'd be Dolph Ziggler's um zigzag. Yes. I like that move. I mean, because that's a move, you know, you could surprise somebody. Um, well, okay, you see one of your buddies getting beat up in a fight by two people. You go from behind, jump from behind one of them, grab by the head and pull them back like that. The ground. Yeah. That's yep. going to be a showstopper, at least for oh, a Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And, I mean, I like the way that move works, but because it's Dolph Ziggler, you know, here the past few years, they've been having him be – job or two the stars unfortunately yeah. yeah so it's like it, yeah it's it went from ending i mean he's won he won a world title with that move he's won u.s titles intercontinental titles tag titles with that move and now like you said he's just a jobber to the stars and now it's like he'll hit the zigzag on somebody and they kick out and it's like no no i'm gonna need you to not do that <laughs> right and uh, now, granted, I do like that move still better uh, than the sling blade because, to me, the sling blade, really, if you think about it, that one, I don't think I've ever really seen that one as a finishing move either. Of course, I mean, it may have been because it seems like every time somebody invents a new move, it gets used as a finisher for a little bit. Yeah. But to me, it's almost like they're running it and they kind of jump up, kind of touch their chin, but then kind of pull their arm around and do the rest of it. It's almost like a flying, really weak flying clothesline. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Um, but I know there's got to be some other moves because I had a list earlier today and then the day just got extremely busy and yeah, I can't find I my list. In my head and I'm trying to think. Uh, Neckbreaker is another one. Yeah, that, and see, that that's right because that's another one of those that for one guy, it was a finishing move. For the next guy, it was a just a move. Yeah, yeah. It's like Jay Briscoe uses it in Ring of Honor. That's one of his go-to moves. But it's just it's just a move. But when Rick Rude used it as the Rude Awakening, it was over. Yeah. He snapped your neck. You stayed down. Yeah. And there was also the neckbreaker is one of those. There were so many different variations to it, but one of them um, I actually saw some people call this like the Russian neckbreaker or a Russian leg sweep. But that was another one that one guy was a finisher move. The next guy is just a move. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's 
I don't know if it was because it was Rick Rude and he was just so smooth at everything that he made he it look <laughs> he made it just look devastating. Or if it's another one of those that it was just, you know, as time goes on, it's like just nobody nobody wants to use it as a finisher. It's one of those it's one of those simpler moves that's if it's done right, it looks brutal. Yeah. Because I mean, he would just, look. I mean, and, and I think also because when Rude did it, you know, I can't get my bicep to look like his because, well, he was, <laughs> he was Rick Rude. I'm definitely not, but, <laughs> but they're saying, and, and he would twist them and they're, and, and they're back to back and then boom, he would just drop. Yeah. He would just drop straight down. And it's like, every time I saw it, I was like, oh man, that's got to hurt. And at least it wasn't the honky tonk man's neck breaker. Now that one, if somebody kicked out of, yeah, I was fine with. I couldn't stand it. Neck breaker, yeah. I mean, it looked terrible. I yeah. mean, I don't even know how they why they call it a neck breaker. I've seen other people use it too, and it's like I've never gotten to where it's just like you're just swinging them and throwing them down. It's like I don't understand how they think that's a you know devastating maneuver, as Vince McMahon would have said. What a maneuver, um, <laughs> Vince! It was just a guy, you know, handing his wife his wallet. Yeah, yeah. love that. He was, just, he was just buying popcorn, Vince. You buy buying popcorn, Vince? Yeah, I just. Well, you want some popcorn? We get, <laughs> get, okay. You only okay. <laughs> anyway, um, um, another one, and you don't see this move that often because a lot of organizations have legitimately banned it because people getting hurt, but the power driver. Yes. Yes. You know, Paul Norndorf, you weren't kicking out of his because the dude's jumping six foot in the air before he does it. No, nope. he was yeah. spiking you. That was it. He, speaking of spiking, uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Branchard would use the spike pile driver. Yes. That was it. That was it. Once they hit it, whether they cheated and did it or whether they just did it in front of the ref, the match was over. Yeah. There wasn't any kicking out of the spike pile driver. Tombstone. Now, it was like Kane's. Canes was always hit or miss, whether they kicked out or not. It was always 50-50. Should have been a finisher because look at the size of the man dumping you mm -hmm. on your head. Should His should always have been a finisher. Undertaker's was always a finisher, except if it was a high-stakes match like him and Sean at WrestleMania 25. Right. Sean kicked out of the first tombstone. But Undertaker always managed to get to bring it back around and get the tombstone to put him down, especially in WrestleMania 26, where he couldn't put Sean away with the normal tombstone, so he hit him with the jumping one. Yeah, you know, Paul Orndorff, and that was that was it for sure. That was it. Yeah, but now guys hit the hit the hit the pile driver if they hit it. Like independent companies, they still use it pretty frequently, but now it's just like. We're going to hit the pile driver and then we're going to go to this. Or like the Young Bucks have incorporated a, you know, they use a pile driver and does the spike, but it never looks really good because whichever one of the Bucks is coming off, it's like for as great as their timing is and everything else, their timing on that one is usually off. One of them's always coming down quicker than the other one's coming up to spike the other guy but yeah 
if if they're allowed to use the pile driver, yeah, it's just it's really a crowd popper. Not it's not even a transition move at this point. It's just we're gonna we're gonna hit the pile driver and pop the crowd and then do something else. Right, and uh, you know that is one of those moves that if the cameras are in the wrong position, kind of like it was at WrestleMania Eight with Jake and Undertaker. Yes. When he came down and he and he did the tombstone on the outside, well, first of all, it was on a mat. Yeah. And second of all, he was a good six inches from even touching the floor. Project's hair hit the hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, it's like uh, when Undertaker at the uh, was it ninety two Survivor Series when Undertaker wrestled Hogan ninety one ninety one yeah for the title Flair slid the slid the chair in and Undertaker yeah tombstone him on the chair but the only thing of hogan's that hit that chair was like maybe some of the fringe hair on the back of his head <laughs> yeah <laughs> but hogan later he laid there like oh my neck and he oh, claimed yeah. later on he had his neck issues like your head didn't even hit yeah <laughs> yeah try that take that to a jury hulkster but i mean the match and i and i get in a way why wwe shied away from that with what happened with steve austin but Guys have been using the pile driver since you know the beginning of pro wrestling and have done it safely. You rarely ever hear. I mean, Steve Austin's accident was a freak thing. I mean, it mm-hmm. sucked that it happened, but it also feels like it kind of sucks that nobody gets to use that move anymore because I I look and feel like that there's guys that could make that move a legitimate finisher again and make it look good. But as far as WWE goes, nobody gets to use that except The Undertaker or Kane, who are both no longer wrestling. So it's pretty much off limits. And the wild thing is, The Undertaker, he wasn't the first one to use the Tombstone Padre that, that because yeah. I, the first one I remember seeing was uh, Magnificent Morocco. Uh-huh. Yep. That was his finishing move. Yeah. Because on TV, he would always point to Jesse Ventura, who would be on commentary. He'd always point yeah. to him and, you know, just for you, bud, yeah. and boom. Yeah. And another good pile driver was, um, I don't know if you ever watched, uh, like, classic ECW, but Just Incredible had a good uh, tombstone pile driver. Oh, I think I did know that. Yeah. But, um, and that was, always, that was always his match ender. I mean, he always won his match with that move. And that's what that's how it should be. Now, I will say the strangest move I've ever seen used as a finishing move, and it was only one match. It was around 2002 or three. It was while I think it was the second season of Tough Enough was going on because Bob Holly was one of the trainers. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and, you know, and they, they took them like on a field trip to go watch, you know, some of the matches. Right. And I remember watching it was, you know, I think it was the Raw that they had this match on. And you saw the guys, you know, all the trainees, they were on the sidelines. And of course later on they had them, you know, they, they had the camera focused on them just for the show, you know, for the tough enough show. He beat a guy with a drop kick. Just huh. threw him into the ropes, jumped up, drop kicked the man in the face, and pinned him. And that was it. I'm like, did he just yeah. beat him with a drop kick? That's crazy. As long as I've been watching wrestling, I don't think I've ever seen anybody get beat with a drop kick. 
Yeah. It and, a missile, it a missile drop kick. I've never seen anybody get hit with get hit with a missile drop kick and lose a match. Um, there was a guy named Steve Casey, um, and it wasn't like the one who was out of uh, Texas. This is a totally different guy who was actually from England uh, because Flair had brought him in. He uh, was impressed by him. He had seen him wrestle in the UK some. But he actually, because I remember he was the very first person I ever saw use a drop kick off the top rope. And, you know, so that was kind of his move that and he, I, uh, he had a couple other moves like the airplane spin. Uh, you know, personally, I think if I, I saw you using an airplane spin, I probably, if I was a promoter, I'd probably fire you. <laughs> but, um, that move looked cool. Fun. It looked cool when I was a kid, but. Unless you're Terry Funk and you're using a ladder. Yeah. Now, if you're using a ladder to do it, yeah, you're hitting somebody with that, but. You know, or if I were to somehow throw my, my son, who's as bad as tall as my wife now, if I were to throw him on top of my shoulder, give her a police, but that's just fun because, you know, you're wrestling around with your kids. Right, exactly. You no, know, but I don't see how it makes the person being given the airplane spin dizzy. I think the person giving the airplane spin would be dizzy. Yeah, that's like when Cesaro does his swing. I don't know how, you know, I don't really get how the person taking it is really dizzy because I mean, really, all you'd have to do is kind of close your eyes and lay out. Yeah. But I would say, think Cesaro would be extremely dizzy once he's done. Not a fan of the move, but I do like how he ends up by putting him in the sharpshooter. Yeah. You know, um, which is that, another transition move. Yeah. If that that was also and submission moves as transmit transition moves to me is just odd. Yes, I agree. But, but people do it all the time. I've never seen anybody submit to the rocks um, sharpshooter. If they did submit to his sharpshooter, I'd fire him. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it, it did not look good. It, it didn't because he had their knees. Their knees were still on the mat. He just kind of has their legs kind of, you know, yeah. folded a little bit. Um, but Cena's STF, it's okay. But I've ne also never seen anybody submit to that. Uh, I actually, I had, I've uh, seen Triple H submit to it. He's tapped out Triple H, John Cena. I mean, John Cena. John Cena has tapped out Triple H, Shawn Michaels, and Edge that I know of with, with. Okay. I, don't, okay, with I, had, to, I had to see at least one of them. Um, just sort of my mind. He, but... beat, he beat Triple H with it at, at uh, Mania 22. And then he beat Shawn with it the next year at 23. But there's another move that I, I have a feeling it probably used to be a finishing move, probably a submission move, and that's the abdominal stretch. Um, yeah, I, I can. I, you know, back in the day. I've never seen it as a match ender, but I can almost bet in the like early days of pro wrestling that that was a, that was a match ender. Yeah. And with the, with the like legitimate like athletes that they had then because you had a lot of like you know i wouldn't really say collegiate but you had a lot of like you know people that have competed in different olympics and things that were professional wrestlers and i can imagine that somebody used that as a finish yeah and but now i could think about it you actually really don't see that move at all anyway you mm -hmm. see it a lot but not anymore I can't remember. The last time I saw it, I've seen Big E use it. And then, like, he... Oh, like, he does the, that. The slap. The, <laughs> he slaps him in the ribs and does, like, the New Day Rocks thing. Yeah. While he's got him in the pop. Yeah. 
Um, I think yeah. if he did it to me, I'd probably cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd laugh and get fired. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're fired. Yeah, just pay me. I'm gone. <laughs> yeah, just pay me. I had fun. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it's that it, and you know, as we're talking about the, this evolution of the moves and how they went from being, you know, legitimate solid finishing moves to transition moves to sometimes not even used at all. I think that's how they ended up with this pattern. And, and I know they've kind of, they, they scaled it back some, thankfully of, okay, we've run out of moves to do. So we're just going to do your finishing move three times, four times before you actually pin the guy or girl. Yeah. And with some moves I can, I'm, and if I'm watching and some moves, they hit it more than once i'm like okay especially in a big match you expect you you don't expect the first finisher to be it but if they're hitting the same move four or five times and the guy's still kicking out then it's like then what's the point go to something else because you just you just ruined the legitimacy of your finisher because the f5 i'm sorry that is a hard hitting move it really is yeah and but you know, even when he beat the Undertaker at Mania 30, he gave him three F5s before he finally pinned him. Yeah, and that was after Taker gave him a, a few tombstones, you know, a couple choke slams, a last ride, um, the Hell's Gates, and I mean, Undertaker yeah. hit him with every finish. Yeah, and and finally, of course, Brock hit him with all the Germans, and he hit him with the all the F5s and. Well, that's really the the move. That's that's Brock's move set right there. <laughs> Pretty much, if he's not motivated to do anything else, yeah, that's his move set. Yeah, I mean his move. He is a video game. I mean, yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. So he's got five finishers loaded up, and he's just hitting them all. <laughs> yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, done. But he also hit how many F fives against McIntyre? And by the way, that that world title match, it was brutal looking. It was hard hitting. But as far as like match quality, when the match consisted of like three Germans, two F5s, three Claymore kicks, and that was it. And there may have been like a punch or two thrown in. Yeah. Yeah. That was all. That, that was the entire match. Yeah. And see, I don't really care for those either. Probably the best that I've seen with Brock was when he challenged Cena for the, uh, for the title at SummerSlam, and he just mauled John Cena. Yeah, now, that was believable. He hit an F five quick. Really, just a storyline wise, he was just playing with him, and just he's like, because afterwards he throws down his mouthpiece, and he's like, "I gave you a chance, John." And then he proceeds to suplex him everywhere, and then he only hit one more F five, and that was the end of the match. Right. But he just mauled John Cena, and. That was believable. Guy that size with his skill, yeah, he's going to maul you. But, but like you said, in the, in the match with McIntyre, it's like it was just like two video game characters going at each other. Yeah. We're just going to throw all of our finishes out there and see which who can catch a pin first. And eventually it was Drew, and, and the world rejoiced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least I did. I know. <laughs> I was pretty happy about that. I don't know about this babyface run. I mean, completely off topic, but I don't know about this babyface run. 
with Brock. I don't know. I just, Brock has never been a believable baby face to me. He's always been that, that he's always been that bully. He's always been that guy that, that was, you know, just came in and wrecked everybody and left. And I don't, and they're positioning him as the top baby face on SmackDown. And I just don't know how that's going to work. I don't think it will because he's not comfortable as a baby face. And, and that's, so that's another reason why he won't be believable because yeah, you know, he's a bully. So he's not comfortable being, he likes being booed because he likes being, yeah. a, butthole, being a butthole basically. Yeah. You know, but it doesn't get to him. Like, unlike, like we were talking about Ronda Rousey on a past show, the booze got to her, you know, and right. it really, you could tell it really bothered her. It doesn't bother Brock. Brock's fine with you booing him. He's like, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to get my check. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get on my private plane. And I'm going back to Canada. So if you want to boo, fine. If you want to cheer, fine. Which all wrestlers should have that mentality because the fans are going to do what they want to do anyway. So you really shouldn't let it bother you. Especially if you're playing a heel, you should just want them to boo you anyway. Right. Because then you know you're doing your job. And so they're having Brock come in as a face. Becky Lynch, they're trying to make her a heel, and it ain't working. I also found out that the re- the Brock coming back was a last-minute decision. That yeah. wasn't something that had been in the works. That was something that they are doing because AEW's getting so much steam with CM Punk coming back that they're trying everything they can to counteract that and try to pull viewers away, and it's it's not working, especially when you take NXT, which is the best product you had, and you've gutted it. And now Vince McMahon and Bruce Pritchard are going to be making all of the big decisions. That was some news we forgot to say at the beginning. Yeah, I forgot that but, too. Yeah. But they said that they said that like all the I guess Triple H is going to handle like the day-to-day stuff, but like all major decisions will be made by Vince McMahon and Bruce Pritchard. If I was Triple H, I wouldn't have any. I mean, like I I took NXT from a joke of a show and made it one of the hottest products in all of wrestling, and then you fire half my roster, and now you're going to completely change everything. I'd be like, I don't want any part of it anymore. Yeah, and by saying they don't want any more indie wrestlers, they want everybody to be homegrown. Yep. You're not going to have, and yeah, we've gone really kind of completely off topic, but <laughs> you're not going to have, <laughs> you know, you're not going to have that veteran presence that can teach the young talent. Right, because you can't have a roster full of green talent. Who are they going to work against each other? They're not going to learn. They're not going to learn how to get better. They're not going to learn the nuances of wrestling. If they're wrestling, it's just as green as they are. You've got to have them in there with seasoned talent so they can learn from them. Yes. And they've taken that away. Of course, WWE are also the ones who this really, it started with WrestleMania X7. Rock and Stone Cold. No, actually, it may may have been. No, it wasn't X7. It was 15. Rock and Stone Cold. When they kicked out of each other's finishing move. Now, they only kicked out of it once. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, but the fact was they kicked out of it. And then the rock actually talks about it in his book um, that I think it was actually his idea. He told stone cold, I want to kick out of the stunner. And Austin looked at him like, say what? And they said, but he said, I want you to, to also kick out of the rock bottom. You know, but it was yeah, that's a fair trade. I mean, yeah, that way yeah. neither one of their neither one of their finishers look weak because both of them kicked out. So it's like, well, these guys are really tough to kick out of each other's finishers. Yep, and they only did it once, and it was a kick out at two and seven eighths. I mean, yeah. the, the referee's hands almost slapped off. Okay, they, and yeah. that was like a hard kick out. It was just a uh, just yeah, you know, just enough, and. It didn't bury them, and then that started that trend, and now we they've had to go back. They like I said, they've had to scale it back now. Well, it's like they followed instead of just sticking with what worked, they followed the indie trend, which that was the indie trend for a while was like multiple kickouts in a match, and you know, I get that for I get that for the indies because you're wrestling in front of 500 people. Right. Maybe a thousand. I mean, you're wanting them to get their money's worth. And all wrestling companies want their, you know, should want their fans to get their money's worth. But right. WWE had their own, they always talk about having their own style, the WWE style of wrestling. But then you see what's working on the independent scene. So of course they ape that. But the problem with that is then they dialed it up to eleven and just it was ridiculous almost it's like you know you got six kickouts in one match you know from finishers and it's like if if i if this guy's kicked out say the stunner of four stunners then what's going to finish this match the only time i've seen that where it worked was kurt angle and steve austin at SummerSlam 2001 austin was the heel Angle was the face. Angle hit him with the stunner four different times, and Angle kept kicking out. So Austin just attacked the referee to get disqualified, because which was basically match. You know, it was match ending, but it right. told the story that I don't have anything else to throw at Kurt. He's kicking out of my best stuff, so I'm just I'm walking. I'm gonna get disqualified, and I'm leaving. It told a good story, but. It wasn't just a throwaway thing where Kurt kicked out four times and then he got a, and then Steve gets a quick roll up and pins it. Right. And it wasn't just a, he kicked out four times. He kicked out to his finisher four times. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, Steamboat Savage, WrestleMania three, there was just a ridiculous amount of near falls in that one, but none think, of them were repeat think, moves. Right, right. I think Chris Jericho said one time in an interview he had counted, and I think there was 22 near falls is what he said. Yeah, and different moves every time. So, I mean, that yeah. and that to me looks believable. Yeah, it was never a finisher that they were kicking out of. It was always an inside cradle or a back suplex or, you know, like you said, it was something different every single time. But now it's like you've got, you've got guys – unloading the entire arsenal and they're still kicking out and then it's like well where where, where do we go from here what's going to end this match if 
their best shot wasn't going to end it. Right. And it's like Cornette said, he said, they're always like, and you said it earlier, every match, especially on TV, they're all trying to get all their stuff in. It's like, okay, yeah. you, you got a five minute match. Okay. But I got 20 moves that I do. I'm going to get them all in. Yeah. I got to get them all in because I don't know when I'm going to be back on TV and I want people to remember me. So I got to get everything in right now. And that's the problem with today's televised wrestling is, and this is all companies. The rosters are so big, there's only so much TV time for everybody. So then you have those situations where guys get five or six minutes and instead of telling a story, and you can tell a story in five or six minutes if, oh, yeah. of wrestling if you do it right. But instead, they're just showing what move. It's like in that five or six minutes, they're auditioning instead of wrestling. Right. And that also leads into the issue where we've said that, you know, that pay-per-view, that so-and-so pay-per-view, this particular match and that particular match, that particular match look like matches off a of raw. Yes. Because yes. they're using the exact same moves because yep. yeah, they don't pull out anything new for the pay-per-views. And that's really where you should be. Yeah. You know, uh, back it's in like, the day. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm uh, sorry. Well, I was going to say back in the day, what we saw on TV and then yes, it was all the enhancement matches. I mean, we saw that. I mean, it was the, these guys who were beating the snot out of Sam Houston, Gene Ligon, and, right. and and Tony Zane, you know, <laughs> and the Mulkies, you know, they were uh, smacking yeah. them around. And then you'd have somebody else smacking somebody else around. And they say, and these two guys who are smacking these other guys around, well, they're going to be fighting each other at, you know, Greensboro Coliseum on this date. Okay. It'd make you want to go watch that house show. Cause this was. Exactly. Yeah. And so now, I mean, I know, yeah, I know they're going back to house shows, but they don't really advertise them the way they used to. And it's almost like the house shows run off different storylines. They do. And it's like the house shows have become, it's just, it's practice. Yeah. House shows are practice for them to feel out what, what's going to work in this particular storyline or if these two people have chemistry and all that. And that, that all should have been worked out before you go traveling to the different towns. Cause back in the day, like old school NWA, they didn't do it that way. you like, you already knew guys would have, you know, they would go from city to city and guys already knew each other. And they knew their style and they already had their chemistry and routines worked out and things like that. And now it's like, especially with WWE, they will just basically give away their marquee pay-per-view matches at house shows. And it's like, then why am I going to buy the pay-per-view to see the same match? Because like Rhea Ripley, uh, Nikki Ash and Charlotte, they ran that triple threat for a month on the house show circuit. On house shows, yeah. Before SummerSlam. So it's like, you're expecting the same, you're expecting these people to, it's a little better now because of, you know, the network or Peacock, or, you know, because, but when you were paying 60 bucks a pop for a pay-per-view, but I'm not going to go see this show. I'm not going to pay for this pay-per-view because I've already seen this match a couple of times this month at house shows. You know, so it's like I don't get the whole point of 
I don't, I never get in the point of giving away pay-per-view type matches on free TV because they can say what they want about ratings, but in the digital age, ratings do not mean nearly what they used to mean because once you sign a contract, that contract is binding. So the ratings aren't going to affect your contract with that TV station. I mean, they may not renew your contract when it's over, but as big of a global brand as WWE is, they're never going to hurt for a place on, on network TV. But if they keep, um, <laughs> unless that, unless, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Unless I mean, they, they've been, they've been messing up here lately. Yeah. You know, having but, a, what was, was it a hell on a cell match on, on SmackDown, on SmackDown. It's like, what are you yeah. thinking? And they, yeah. Cause they pulled it from the pay-per-view to put it on SmackDown. And uh, yeah, um, people were not happy about that. Like higher ups were not happy about that. Fox was not happy about that because they wanted it to be on the pay-per-view. So then people would turn around and watch SmackDown the following week for the fallout and all that. And they didn't have all that because they just, WWE just gave away the match on, on TV. Now, AEW is a little different because they don't do the house show circuit yet like yeah. WWE does. So the TV is their TV is their product way for the world to see them. So I get having matches on on free TV, but AEW still they don't do that often. You'll get marquee names wrestling, but when it's a major feud you're going to get that blow-off match on pay-per-view. You're not going to get that on an episode of Dynamite. And with the WWE, and we've said that they're falling into the same trap, uh, the same habits that WCW did. Uh, When Bischoff was looking for ratings, and of course, that's because he worked for a television company, and so they were looking for ratings. They were looking for ratings, which made... He had to make his product be good enough to win the the ratings war. Right, and in reality, he should have been looking at profit. And he'll say that even now. He'll he'll yeah. you know he'll admit it now. He should have been looking at the profit margin. And now, granted, he was the only one who ran it. They actually did have a profit at least one year. The only time yeah. it ever had a profit. Yeah. But one of their biggest mistakes was okay. WWF at the time was is is catching up in the ratings. Up. Uh, uh, um, Hogan and Goldberg next week for the title. Yeah, yeah. in the Georgia Dome. In the Georgia Dome. Tuesday. Yeah, fifty thousand people. And I this... get... yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say that was a match. I mean, everybody wanted to see, and everybody would have paid for it on pay per view. Absolutely, that's what they. To me, that's what they were building up to with the whole Goldberg run and everything was him to beat Hogan. You know how much money could have been made if they'd have saved that for Starcade? No, but they didn't. Nope. I mean, they mean, gave it away on free TV to pop a rating in it. I mean, they popped a rating, but in the the end, they still went out of business. They still, that, lost, they still lost $80 million in a year. Was that the last time they beat WWF in the ratings? Was that particular show? Yes. That was the last time, if I remember right, because shortly later... In that, I think it later in that same year uh, was when 
Eric Bischoff had Tony Schiavone basically but, make Mick Foley win in the world title. Yes. And 600,000 people changed the channel. I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. I was too. As soon as they announced it, that Mick, because it was Rolls back then. And as soon as they announced that Mick Foley was going to win a world title, I'm like, oh, really? And I turned. Click. Yep. And that was the same night as the Finger Poke of Doom. Yes. Yep. Ooh. Yeah, I can't remember if I brushed my teeth this morning, but I remember that. And that was, you know, how many years ago? 23 years ago. Yeah, I remember seeing that because that would that was that was a money match too that they could have had on pay-per-view. Yep. But instead they just used it as as a swerve, just to, as Vince Russo doing a swerve just for swerve's sake, I guess. And you know, actually it's probably a good they think they didn't have it on pay-per-view because people would have asked for their money back seeing that finger poke. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. So but all right, so I think we've actually covered the topic pretty well. And I think we're both in agreement that stop using finishing moves as transitional holds. Absolutely. They're 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 called finishers for a reason. They're match enders. Yes. And just like there's a guy, he's actually um he's a wrestler named Jack Vaughn. He's actually on my Facebook, and I think I follow him on Twitter as well. Every time he posts something, it didn't matter. He could be posting something like happy birthday to somebody. And at the very end, he'll always say, ban the super kick. <laughs> you know, and because he feels, and somebody finally asked, and I saw this, they asked him, why do you keep saying that? He said, because it's supposed to be a finishing move. Now everybody uses it. It's no longer effective. Yeah, exactly. It's been, it's been watered down to the point where it's just like, you know, it's coming at some point in the match and you're just waiting for them to get it out of the way so that they can. Yeah. Keep going for the rest of the match. Whew. So, but all right, my friends. So next Monday, we, we have some tentative things going on the air. So I don't want to announce them. I don't want to announce anything because we don't have anything uh, certified right. yet, but we are working on some things. It kind of all depends on other people's schedules in a way. Yeah, because we might have an interview. We we got you mentioned the person earlier, but we might have an interview. We don't know yet. Uh, but in the meantime, we always a lot of times Monday is a good time to think talk about whatever has just happened over the weekend. In fact, isn't there a pay per view this weekend with AEW? Yes, All Out is in Chicago on Sunday. So I uh, don't know if I'll be able to watch it or not. Uh, we'll just have to see. I have not what I have not actually caught an AEW pay per view live yet. I've always caught like afterwards. Yeah, that's how I've caught them is afterwards. I haven't caught them live yet, but it's all AEW always puts on a good pay per view. I will give them credit. I've never in the you know two years plus of their existence, I haven't seen a bad pay per view. Right, and, and probably because they only do like four pay per views a year. Yeah, so they keep it they keep it simple. They keep it they don't. They don't drag it out and give you like 12, 13 pay-per-views a year. So your their pay-per-views end up being bigger deals because there's so few. Right. So, but in the meantime, we will definitely figure it out by the time Monday rolls around. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, that's one thing we also have not missed yet. And, yep. and we know even uh, in the upcoming month, uh, because I know some things for me, they're going to be happening on Monday. I've already let you know about one of them. Yeah. So we might end up either 
recording on Sunday, but still delaying the production, you know, the upload until like the Tuesday morning, like I have been doing, mm -hmm. or just maybe record on Tuesday and that would be like day. We'll figure out something. But I do want to thank everyone who's listened that's actually told Dwayland and myself um, how we're doing. We, we, I know Dwayland definitely appreciates that because he showed me a text message he got from a friend of his who enjoys the show. Uh, my wife actually showed me a text she got from somebody, uh, a friend of hers, who said, by the way, tell your husband I like his podcast. You know, he does a really good job on it. You know, so I, and we are, we're growing the audience with people that we may not ne necessarily know. I mean, well, your friend, you know, so obviously you know him, but we're branching right. out like that. And that's yes. really, you know, I, I think that's just awesome. And, and so we, we want to thank everyone who listens. You know, we, we love and appreciate every single one of you. Absolutely. We, we absolutely do. Thank you, everyone who listens to us. I hope you keep enjoying the show because we enjoy doing it. Yes. And, and if we do something wrong, yeah, definitely let us know because if we're doing it wrong, we don't know we're doing it wrong. Well, we're going to keep doing it probably. So, right. You know, because I mean, we're smart guys, but you know, if we don't know, you don't know. Right. Um, Feedback's always good. Yep. And so, but all right, my friend, until then, I'll be talking at you. All right. God bless. God bless.